Hello and welcome to I Thought I'd Be Rich By Now. This is the podcast where millennial women come to obsess. I'm your host, Deborah. If you like me and like this little podcast, please rate and review. This really helps out tiny little independent podcasts like this one. So as a society, we are getting through this lap. I mean, Dave Chappelle was also just attacked on stage, so it's a free-for-all out there. But as for the original slap, I think we've come past it together as the main Hollywood story, but it was dominating the news cycle for, what, a good two to three week period, at least. So at this point, it's old news, meaning I am right on time. I love news that has a good fermenting period. I get severe secondhand embarrassment. It is brutal. I get severe embarrassment for myself, like everyone else, right? You know that thing you did when you were 23 years old that you've thought about every day for 13 years? Oh, you don't do that? Wow. What it must be like to be a free person. I wouldn't be able to do this podcast without working through those issues because truly I cringe at myself all the time every day. I'm sure if I listen to this episode two months from now I will hate everything about it so clearly I have issues but it is something that I'm committed to overcoming because hey you have one life and you can't not do things because you risk being embarrassed But if I can avoid my eyes absorbing other people embarrassing themselves, I do so. That is why, up until now, I have not watched the Will Smith, Chris Rock, Oscar slap video that has been seen now at the beginning of May by like 90% of the world's population. This is the second year in a row that I haven't watched the Oscars because One of the results of the pandemic is that as media-obsessed as I am, I just haven't felt as into watching award shows and looking at celebrity fashion photos, etc. as much. I'm not even that interested in watching most of the nominated or winning films. I watched Power of the Dog and like 80% of Licorice Pizza, and I have thoughts, but for the most part, I'm much more excited about shows and podcasts But even so, not watching the Oscars is super weird for me because that used to be one of my favorite days of the year to celebrity watch and cheer for my favorite films. It was like my Super Bowl. Yeah, is that basic? I don't care. All that to say, my apathy for the Oscars now saved me from the slap. If I had watched that live... My body would have recoiled into myself and I'd be a human bowling ball. I can't physically, like, I cannot take that, like, watching something like that in real time. Oh, Will, why? Why did you do that? I love Will Smith. He is truly one of the best that Hollywood has to offer. I cannot believe he would do this to his own legacy the night that he wins an Academy Award. I don't like when celebrities put too much emphasis on award show nights or when other people do that because it can be grating on people with real jobs to hear. 
multi-multi-millionaires speak poetically about how much their craft changes the world for the better. So totally in the grand scheme of things, you know, war, poverty, climate change. Will Smith's unscripted slap hands on Chris Rock's unsuspecting face is quite low in actual meaning. But still, oh my god. Imagine having the mega star career that he has and then waiting and waiting for an Oscar and it's the night of the Academy Awards, arguably the biggest night of your entire career and you win one and no one cares because they're too busy discussing and dissecting another thing you did. And this is all a result of something you did to yourself. That hurts. Because even good people do dumbass things. And even celebrities, maybe especially celebrities at the tippy top, don't realize how far the fall is down when they don't realize there's nobody there to save them. Audiences are fickle. I mean, they love a comeback story, so this will all blow over someday. But for now, Will Smith is Kanye and Chris Rock is Taylor Swift. I don't think something this dramatic has happened on live TV since the Kanye-Taylor fiasco, where there's a good guy and a bad guy, and it just makes for really good entertainment news, memes, everything. More than anything, it's just so weird. Will Smith is not that guy. That's why to me it's beyond bizarre and I can't wrap my head around it. Like there are a few people that if they did it, it would still be shocking obviously, but you'd be like, yeah, I see it. I I can see that for that person, but not with Will Smith. Jada Pinkett Smith and her daughter Willow and Jada's mother Adrian host a talk show Red Table Talk on Facebook Watch. In a recent episode like on the screen, there's text where they describe the family going through healing after what has transpired over the last few weeks, and they will basically discuss what happened when the time is right. Essentially, they will address the slap in a future episode, which I'm sure will break all kinds of records. I will maintain my position that I think the better choice is to do an Oprah interview. This is like an Oprah special waiting to happen. Maybe in the end, Chris Rock comes out. You know you can picture it too. I think having someone like Oprah there to ask questions would be a better fit. So just hear me out. Oprah is the master at this kind of thing. So having her there would make everything better. I think that the Smiths could still control the narrative, and I don't say that in a pejorative way because we all want to control the narrative of our own lives to a certain extent. There are some of the, or they are some of the only celebrities that are on Oprah's level in terms of fame and power, so she's not going to let them coming out looking like trash. My total PR spin is that she'll make them seem more relatable because they're allowing themselves to be interviewed by someone else. So they're not only speaking to like one another, but instead are opening themselves up to questioning. The slop was a PR nightmare in the court of public opinion. Doing an interview of your own self or family is like representing yourself in court. 
there's a slight chance that it will work out in the end, but more often than not, you go to prison. So let Oprah be your attorney for the cross-examination. Let Oprah take the wheel. I still love Will Smith. Fresh Prince is one of the best it comes of all time. Will Smith is one of the few Hollywood superstars because not only is he a good actor, but he is charismatic and comes across as such a genuine and nice person. And that's what makes this worse. I'm so glad this is the only important thing happening in the world right now. I'm not a paid chill for the Smiths, but I'm absolutely open to cash payments. I have been waiting for so long to see this movie and I finally watched it. That movie is Zola, starring Taylor Page and Riley Keough. It's one of the few movies over the last two pandemic years that I was really hyped up to see. This is a comedy crime drama directed by Janixa Bravo and written by Janixa Bravo and Jeremy O'Harris. If you don't know anything about Zola, Zola has one of the best origin stories of any recent movie I can think of. So, a long time ago back in October of 2015, in the before times, when we were all little innocent babes, this young woman, Asia Zola King, logs into her Twitter account and tells the tale that enthralls the social media site. By the way, all of the recounting that I'm doing based on Asia's tweets are allegedly Just imagine me saying allegedly before each sentence. Asia's opening tweet of this thread is instantly a classic. You want to hear a story about how me and this bitch here fell out? It's kind of long, but it's full of suspense. Asia is a waitress at Hooters. She meets a customer, Jess, and they hit it off when they discover that they both dance as strippers and they bond over their hoism. Asia's word, not mine. The very next day, Jess is asking Asia to go on a trip with her, her boyfriend, and her roommate to Florida to strip for the weekend where they can make a lot of money. What transpires next is wild and unbelievable, and everyone who read this story was already imagining it being a movie, and that's exactly what happened. This is about to be full of spoilers, although I will not be recounting the entire story, so make your decision if you want to keep listening. Just FYI, I read the Twitter thread years ago now, and I knew what to expect going into the movie, and it didn't ruin it for me, but most of the time, I hate spoilers. I will also say before spoilers, I really enjoyed Zola. You should definitely watch it. It's a roller coaster. Riley Keough is so good at being that dumbass girl who gets you roped into some stuff that you were never expecting. I had not heard of Taylor Page before this movie, and she played Zola, and she was really good as well. She actually won Best Female Performance at the Independent Spirit Awards. Okay, spoilers will commence. I don't know if it was pacing or what. I wanted this movie to pack a punch a little bit more at times, because the original story felt so exciting and crazy while you were reading it. Maybe if they had tried to cram more into it, it wouldn't have been as good as this movie was. It's a tight movie. It's only like an hour and 20 minutes. That's probably the downside of reading the story first, is that it's so wild that it could be hard to live up to. Asia Zola King is truly a really great storyteller. 
She wrote this back when each tweet had a limit of 140 characters and she made every word count. The Zola tale had all the hallmarks of the best thrillers. Shocking twists, comedic relief, character arcs, etc. I reread the Twitter thread for this episode and I can't believe all of the plot points I had totally forgotten about because it was so long ago that I had first read it. It's no longer on Twitter, but you can find the screenshots online by searching for the Zola thread. Zola and Jess travel to Tampa with Jarrett, Jess's boyfriend, and Jess's roommate Z. Z, the roommate, drops Jarrett off at a nasty motel to wait for the night while Zola and Jess go to the strip club. At the club, Jess tells Zola that she's known Z for a really long time and he used to take care of her. Zola explains that taking care of you means that Z was Jess's pimp previously. So that night, after stripping, Jess tells Z that she didn't make much money, so he asks her if she wants a trap. Jess agrees. Meanwhile, Zola is wondering what the hell she's gotten herself into, and Jarrett is still at the nasty motel freaking out because he can't get his girlfriend on the phone and is pretty sure she's selling sex, and he's none too pleased about it. Z takes the woman to a much nicer hotel that night and tells Jess that he is procuring clients for her. When Zola and Jess get to the room and Z leaves, Zola unleashes on Jess because she's so upset that her newfound friend promised her a weekend of stripping and meanwhile, Jess is about to engage in much riskier business. Jess starts crying, begs Zola to stay with her, Zola feels bad, so she stays so that she can check the guys coming up paying for sex. A guy comes up, and the guy and Jess start having sex on the bed right next to Zola. As she describes it, it was a mess. When he's done, he gives Jess $100. Zola was like, no, I'm not having any of that. She took some pics of Jess and posted them on Backpage, charging $500 for 15 minutes with Jess, and then all of a sudden, their phone was blowing up with men wanting to come up to be serviced. To be clear, this whole time, Jarrett has no idea where his girlfriend Jess is, so he is completely freaking out. Not really for her safety, More so that he knows that more likely than not, she's having sex with men for money. Jarrett seems really unstable, but not really in a violent way towards Jess, just more unpredictable. However, the man finds his girlfriend's back page post and puts it on Facebook for Jess's whole family to see. People who do things like that like that expose the dirty dark secrets of their supposed loved ones to enact revenge are literally the worst. That's like revenge porn. It's disgusting. They don't go too deep in the movie, but that part of the story always pissed me off so much. Break up with the girl. Don't blow up her entire life because you're mad. Further craziness, messiness happens. I won't recount it all so that you have something to be surprised at when watching the movie and or reading the tweet thread. This movie, for what it is in the performances, especially Riley Keough and Coleman Domingo, is super fun and wild. 
Janixa Bravo's direction was exciting and surprising. She incorporated like really cool unexpected elements of dreamlike sequences that were captivating and beautiful and absurd. It is truly a gift to watch a movie that is a smaller movie and is an original story and is so entertaining. So it breaks my heart to say that I hated the ending. Not that it was bad, it's just that it ends way too abruptly. If you know the story beforehand, you know that 10 to 15 minutes more, and they could have wrapped this up perfectly. They ended the film in a kind of artsy way where there's no real conclusion. And I understand that it is hard to wrap up a true story like this if the ending is actually boring in real life. But the ending in real life has so much more to it. They could have actually ended like 30 minutes or they could have added 30 minutes to the whole film in real life. But just add five or 10 minutes even to the ending. In real life, Jess ends up in jail after Zola gets home And she calls Zola from jail and Zola is basically like, who this and hangs up. They could have ended on that scene of Zola hanging up the phone and going back to watching TV or cooking or looking out the window and doing that same like kind of artsy dream like surreal sequence still and give the audience like a little bit more information on what actually happened in the end. I've never directed anything in my entire life, but studios and directors should definitely listen to my input. Overall, this movie is a great movie. I support this movie so much. So go out, support original independent films like this because it's actually very entertaining. The movie is fun and Jess comes across as a kind of stupid villain in real life. It seems like she may have been a victim who possibly helped victimize other people. Real life tends to be a lot sadder and more complicated than real life. Just look up the Daily Beast article from 2021 about the real Jess and Z, but do it after you watch the movie and read the thread so that you can have fun and laugh before being sad. I only heard about Limetown because of hearing about the promos for the TV show that premiered at the end of 2019 on Facebook Watch. It turns out that Limetone, <laughs> Limetone, Limetown, the scripted two-season podcast, came out in 2015. Where was I? What was I doing? I was not listening to podcasts. I did listen to Serial, season one, around that time, probably. I've heard about the podcast S-Town, and come town but not limetown the only other scripted podcast i've ever listened to was bubble a sci-fi comedy produced by maximum fun which i thoroughly enjoyed and would love to listen to a season two however i believe there is going to be an animated film at some point okay so what happened was i started going on a lot of walks and i wanted to diversify my listening options and found people raving about this series. I knew it was a show, but listening to it was much more convenient for me for my walks. Limetown blew me away. It was created in a lab based on my desires and wants. It was mysterious and thrilling and so well produced. Created by Two Up Productions, 
This fictional podcast is about a journalist making a podcast. This is your no-spoiler recap. Ten years ago in this fictional world, a town of 300 people in Tennessee, all working or connected to a research facility, just disappeared. That town was called Limetown. Leah Haddock, a journalist who has been drawn to this story from her youth, decides to create a podcast to document her investigation into this unbelievable event. The writers leaned into intrigue. This is audio, so obviously there's so much dialogue and it all matters. You learn so much about the person and their life and how it all relates back to the disappearances in Limetown. You can feel really frustrated because you want to be like, what happened? What does it all mean? But you'll really appreciate and value the journey you're taken on. I just thought of this, but something about Limetown season one reminded me a little bit of reading Annihilation. Annihilation is a book written by Jeff Vandermeer. That is one of the weirdest stories I've ever read and it left me feeling unsettled in a way that I can't explain and re or sorry it remains one of the most mysterious reading experiences I've ever had and I loved it and I don't fully understand it that's a conversation for another day. There is a scene at at, at the end of one of the episodes of Limetown that actually scared the crap out of me it was very freaky not like a jump scare but it it just left me feeling uneasy the story of limetown is everything that i love in a good book or show sci-fi element weird mystery that can go in many directions unscrupulous actors willing to do anything to protect themselves or their cause hidden motivations and danger blah 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 The writing and production of this podcast was impeccable. The voice actors were all so talented. They really drew me into the story. Listening to this really shows you how talented and amazing having good sound engineers and mixers or whatever the audio gurus are called who worked on this. It is fun actually listening to all of the background audio that brings scenes to life that you really take for granted, especially when watching a movie or TV show. Sometimes TV and movies can get away with not having great audio because I see like I assume our brains just fill in the gaps because you're seeing the coffee cup or the crowd of people or the car running. But with audio entertainment only, it really impacts the audience experience when it's lacking. Believe me, I know I edit my own podcast and as I'm sure you can tell, I hear every mistake that you do, but it's just me talking to myself so it's not that big of a deal. On the other hand, when you're trying to tell a story, background audio can really make or break it. Side note, I absolutely do not understand why multi-million dollar movies and TV shows have such issues with audio volume. You could be watching a movie where the actors are speaking so quietly you can't hear a word they're saying or you're turning the volume up and down throughout the whole thing. Like what is the point of that? It is so aggravating. Also, this is your only spoiler alert because I'm going to talk about this show, Limetown, So if you don't want to picture the actors while listening to the podcast, 
skip ahead. I'm only talking about one actor. So the show Limetown, which I have not yet watched, but I intend to, was canceled after one season, which I think is so dumb, even though I've never watched it. Limetown is a fantastic story. It has a built-in audience and a huge potential to bring over more people. And clearly the average watcher enjoyed it because it has like over a 70% rating. And like Facebook watch. Do you know anyone who is saying, I'm watching Facebook? Like one day for sure it can become like the new Netflix or Prime or Crave. But it's not there yet. I'm so sick of streamers canceling shows before giving them a chance to take off. Like the absolute BS shows allowed to stay on forever and ever, but a show with so much potential gets kicked to the curb if it's not like immediately the new Stranger Things. It's not like they don't have the money to support it. I looked at Facebook original series and the only two titles, like literally the only two that I recognize are Red Table Talk and Limetown. And Limetown stars Jessica Biel as Leah Haddock. Jessica had huge success starring in and producing the show The Sinner, which I'm sure is what led to her starring in and executive producing Limetown. Jessica was like so many of those TV actors around my, our age, who in their early 20s began to pursue a movie career because that's what one did. She left Seventh Heaven, which took her from being like a child star to a young woman. But the movie career never really took off, I'm sure, the way that she planned. Then she went and had a life, got married to Justin Timberlake, had a baby. I think she has two children now. She opened her West Hollywood restaurant, Oh Fudge, like many celebrities who go and open restaurants. But she actually always used to seem to be way more involved with her restaurant. So it was sad for her when it closed. I know you didn't expect a Jessica Biel biography, but here we are. She eventually came back to TV and hit it out of the park. She received a Golden Globe nomination for The Sinner, and it was a big hit for the USA Network. I definitely enjoyed season one, but I haven't watched the other three seasons. I don't think Jessica's character appeared again after season one, but I do believe she produced some of at least some of the uh, subsequent seasons. As I've said before, there are only a few real movie stars left, and most viewers feel way more connected to their favorite TV show stars than movie stars for sure. Movie star will always have that cachet to it, but it's not what it used to be, obviously, when Oscar-winning actors are coming to TV to continue to be relevant, since that's where all the real action and discussion and live tweeting and conversations are, and money as well. It's overall not with movies. That may make you sad, but that's the truth, and it's phenomenal news for TV actors everywhere. So you probably forgot that we're discussing a podcast, but yes, go listen to Limetown, and if you watch the show before I do, let me know what you think. Local Woman Missing is a book by Mary Kabika. I've seen her last name said in multiple ways, and I saw her say it like this, so... I know that I'm correct, don't at me. Yes, I would have read this book on my own with no prompting because it's a whodunit, so absolutely. Also, I like it's all over Indigo whenever you walk into that store or any bookstore. However, 
my book club dictated that I read it and I do everything that my book club tells me to. So I read it and I was thrilled to read a book that I would have chosen myself. This novel follows the story of Meredith Dickey and her six-year-old daughter, Delilah, who go missing. This rocks their community because of the horror of imagining what has happened to them, but also the fact that just a few months prior, another local woman went missing. What's happening in this town? Are they connected? Is there a serial kidnapper or murderer on the loose? This book follows the mysterious disappearance as the family and neighbors of Meredith Dickey become understandably obsessed with finding her and Delilah. It also shows how these events impact their lives and relationships forever. I love taking note of a great start, a great first day of the month, a productive Monday, a fantastic pilot episode to a show, Sherlock with Benedict Cumberbum. An enthralling opening movie sequence, James Bond Specta, the Day of the Dead in Mexico scene, or a phenomenal, gripping opening chapter, Local Woman Missing. There might have been a prologue first and then the chapter or something like that, but either way, it was the start of the book. This opening chapter had me from the start. I was on the edge of my seat. I can't wait for you to read it and experience it yourself. Mary Kabika had me in her grips. I was not going to put that book down after that chapter. I needed to know what happened next. This is a book read from multiple viewpoints. So I was frustrated because I wanted to go directly back to the chapters from the first pages. But of course, good writers should always give readers what they need, not what they want. And that's what she did here. Local Woman Missing weaves a confusing tale because you just can't put your finger on what exactly is going on and what's happening and why. This is a thriller that doesn't take the obvious or easiest path. I would have been quite content for a more conventional ending because sometimes something is what it is and you just enjoy the ride. I didn't know the author prior to this book, but it makes sense when you realize she's written at least seven other novels, including The Other Misses, which is also a huge hit. She's not a newbie and understands incorporating more complicated situations and characters that are much more than they may seem at the outset. I have mixed feelings about some aspects of this book, which is not necessarily a bad thing at all. A lot of things books and shows etc that I really enjoy I don't have only one feeling about it I would definitely read another book by Mary Kabika and you should read Local Woman Missing we're headed to Spoiler City now so get out of here if you want to read this book the characters from that first chapter that had me in its grips are a young boy and girl that have clearly been kidnapped and have been kept trapped in the basement of their captors The kidnappers, a man and woman, have held the children for years in an incredibly inhumane environment. They have no light. They're in a damp, freezing cold basement. They're fed something like slop in a bucket or dog bowl. And food is withheld when the woman, who is the worst of the two kidnappers, doesn't think that the kids are sufficiently grateful for her kindness. The young girl is the brains behind the escape from the basement when she stabs the man with a spoon she'd been sharpening for days or even weeks down there. 
She flees the home in the night with the man and woman right behind her, which makes for a thrilling chase. The young girl loses the boy in the escape, but we find out later on, although he was super vivid in her mind, he was just a figment of her imagination, a friend that her mind created to stave off loneliness. When she escapes, this is years after Delilah, the little girl and her mother went missing. So immediately when this young girl is found, she's thought to be the Delilah, which she believes herself and is sent to live with her father, who is beyond thrilled at this miracle. Her brother is decidedly not so happy about the return of the sister he never really knew. Well, lo and behold, after weeks of living at her new home and beginning to get used to this new life, she's revealed through DNA not to be the real Delilah. Some women at my book club were not convinced by this. I get it. It's hard to believe that someone would accept the wrong child, but grief is a powerful thing. Some people just want to believe. Also, imagine how you'd look. A grieving parent, a child seemingly brought back from the dead to you, and you're like, no, this kid has bad vibes. This is not mine. If you don't think someone could trick someone like that, watch the documentary The Imposter from 2012. That was such a bizarre story. It's about a grown man from Europe who poses as the missing boy from Texas. And this Texas family either gets duped or goes along with his scam, depending on who you believe. But either way, it's wild. Throughout Local Woman Missing, the story jumps back and forth between present day, when the faux Delilah is found, to years previous when Meredith Dickey and true Delilah go missing. Meredith Dickey is good friends with her neighbors, Kate and Kate's wife, B. Kate is a veterinarian and B is a cool musician who writes and plays music from their backyard shed turned home studio. When Meredith and Delilah go missing, these two are immediately on it with helping to look for Meredith as well as helping Meredith's husband, Josh, out who is beside himself with worry and they help out by watching his young son, Leo, as he scours their community looking for his wife and daughter. In the book, it's revealed that Meredith is found dead in what looks like a suicide. She's written a note that tells her husband not to look for Delilah but that she's somewhere safe. This makes no sense to anyone that knows Meredith, including her husband, Josh, and her neighbors. But is it possible that there were things happening in Meredith's life that even her husband wasn't aware of that would cause her to kill herself? B begins to worry that her wife, Kate, is getting in over her head as Kate begins to cross some lines while searching for answers of where her neighbor is. B loves her wife. She loves that her wife has a big heart wanting to help out, but she also doesn't want her wife, Kate, to put herself in danger to help another family. Now, in present day, Kate and B are beyond shocked that the little girl, Delilah, that they once knew and that they had helped search for, has been returned to her father. Kate, B, Meredith, and Josh used to all be really good friends, but the death of his wife and disappearance of his daughter obviously changed him forever. It was hard to go back to just hanging out like before. Their relationship never recovered. Okay, here's the big reveal. Fake Delilah has run away once it's revealed to her that she is not who she thought she was 
and that there's a different family somewhere else awaiting her return. The cops come and they want to check the neighborhood looking for her to see if she's just hiding out somewhere. So then there are flashbacks to 11 years ago that show one night when the two couples, so Josh and Meredith and then B and Kate, all met up at dinner. Josh and Kate needed to both go home. So they both left their respective spouses to stay and enjoy the night and drink and continue to hang out at the restaurant. Both women were intoxicated, but B still drove the car. They hit someone. That someone was the original woman who went missing in the town. Meredith wanted to call the cops, but B said no way both of their lives would be ruined. She pressured Meredith to help her bury the body, which Meredith was so against, but B convinced her. Now they have this massive secret and it's eating Meredith alive day after day. B, because they're neighbors, can keep showing up and sees Meredith and begins to threaten her and threatens Meredith to keep her mouth shut. But Meredith wants to call the police. I have to say, like an idiot, I don't mean to blame the victim, but Meredith is telling B continually she wants to come clean. She sees that B is so resistant, like stop telling, this is like the most dangerous person in the world to you right now. You've seen that B is capable of covering up one unintentional death. How far-fetched is it that she could engage in an intentional death of another person? Well, that's what happens. B kills Meredith to shut her up. Throughout the book, you see how Kate always respects her wife B's space by never entering her shed studio in the backyard because that's where B gets into her artist mode so Kate never enters. It seems overall normal. When the cops come to search that day 11 years later for faux Delilah, they ask B for the keys to her shed. She reluctantly agrees to go into her home and come out and bring the keys back to the cops and Kate and everyone who's waiting near her shed slash studio the cops and kate are waiting there and they're waiting they're waiting they're wondering where the hell b is so then kate goes inside to check on her and b is gone and i think she leaves a note asking for forgiveness this part of the book had me going crazy like oh my gosh delilah's in the shed the cops get into the shed and yes delilah is there so for 11 years, B has had Delilah trapped right next door to her home. Her dad and brother have been through like a terrible, horrible life. And Delilah has been captured in a small office studio. And all this time, they were just like right next door to one another. I was beyond shocked by this ending, which I loved. I didn't love B being the bad guy at first, but the longer I've sat with that and thought about it, I'm really happy with how it played out. It's weird how you can have like changing feelings for a story. That happens to me all the time. Yes, is it sort of unbelievable that the girl was there the whole time and B was able to pull that off without her wife never finding out? Sure, but situations like that have certainly happened in real life. 
think J.C. Dugard, who was kidnapped in 1991 in California at the age of 11 and was held for over 18 years before being rescued. So it is possible. This book was a wild ride because there are so many other people that you think could have done it while you're reading it. I never suspected B. Never, ever. I have watched enough fake crime and true crime to know like that a shed that the rest of the family is not allowed to go in is always a telltale sign. This is all praise to Mary Kabika, who references the shed several times without raising a suspicion. It's done in such a subtle way that it wasn't even on my radar. It wasn't even on my list, not even far down on the list of suspicious things in the book. Even if that's because I'm not a savvy reader, I'm a-okay with that. If that allows me to continue to be surprised and enjoy books like this, I never want to become a sophisticated reader. May we live in our unsophisticated happy place while being shocked and awed by crime thrillers forever. If you listen to all of that, I actually love you. So please rate this podcast. Don't be shy. Email me your thoughts and recommendations at I thought I'd be rich by now at gmail.com or connect with me on Instagram at I thought I'd be rich by now. I'm so glad I chose a short and easy name for my podcast. Goodbye.